At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Hey, I like that new song. That's good. It's very evident that you guys like it as well, right? Okay. Uh, guys, good morning again. You got to see my face again for another, let's say, about 50 minutes. Is that good? I'll try to gear it down. Uh, TikTok? Okay. All right. Yeah, I have TikTok. No, I don't. I don't have TikTok. Uh, all right. So we are in our last week in our series, Divided. We've covered a lot. We've talked about all different forms and and. and Things that we see culturally when it comes to division and 10,000 feet up, this is what you need to know is the church, God's people, are not called to be divided in any way. The world will be divided. We beat to a different drum. And when we are united as churches, united as Christ followers, it is something that It impacts the world greatly to see how we stand out. And I think that is something that, man, if if the church can grab a hold of that, if the church can stand together, not just have a season here or there of unity, but long spans of time where there is unity, it can impact a community, build trust And I believe this is a series that's been so helpful for myself, and hopefully it's been helpful to you as well. I want to share a story. Uh, Many of you know I was in youth ministry for many years, and I took a youth event, took a bunch of kids to this camp, and I remember this camp specifically because there was an abnormal amount of pranks, okay? There was just an abnormal amount of pranks between the guys, and, and I remember this year in particular, we just had a couple of those kids who, there was going to be something that happened, and I had to be like stern, but in my heart, I was like, that's a good one, you know, and, uh, and I remember one of the pranks that year was called the leaner. The leaner is when you fill up a little trash can half full of water, you lean it up on the door, you knock on the door of their dorm room, they open up their door, and of course the trash can comes down, water goes all over them, okay? So there were leaners, um, but the, probably the grossest thing that I witnessed was we forgot to put a gallon of milk or two gallons of milk, we, tr- we forgot to put it away. We packed it on the trip. And we forgot it out, and so it was out in the 100-degree temperature for an entire week. It became so chunky. <laughs> well, of course, when you have a teenage kid who finds a chunky gallon of milk, they got to do something with it. So I remember the last day of camp, a kid was going in to take a shower, and a person went into the next stall and just started pouring the chunky milk all over him. And so he's getting showered with chunky milk, chunks at a time. It was disgusting, right? The smell just permeated the entire floor. It was a very special time, very spiritual time. Uh, But at the end of these weeks, there's always this big push. There's the gospel presentation. and, And it's for the gospel for people to accept Jesus 
the gospel presentation for someone maybe who's been a prodigal to turn their lives back, and, and then also a call for those who are, are being led to go into ministry. And so I had this kid, and he was rock solid, but he grew up in a good Christian home. But, but sometimes when you have a child that grows up in a Christian home, they tend to lack passion for Christ. Have you guys seen that before? It's like it's what they know, and, and the relationship can easily fall onto their parents. It could easily become more um, robotic. And so he was a really good kid, but there just wasn't that passion there. There wasn't really that strong relational bond. And I always remember, man, if God got a hold of this kid, he would do amazing things for the kingdom. God would do amazing things. And so at the end of that week, he came up to me crying, oh, Winston, you know, I, I got something to tell you. And I'm like, all right, what's going on, man? And, and he says, I feel that God is calling me into ministry. I feel that he is calling me to serve him and to be a kingdom worker. And, and I'm not sure what form of ministry, whether a lead pastor or a student pastor, I, I just don't know yet, but I just know that this is what God is calling me to be. And, and in those moments, at, at times, these kids can be emotional, and you try to give them a little time to come down from that mountaintop, give them a couple days, a week, a couple weeks, to see, hey, is this a real godly conviction, or are you just emotional, right? And so uh, in that moment, you know, I talked with him, I processed with him, and then a week went by, and I went back to him, and we were having a, a youth hangout night, and we were walking. I said, hey, I want to follow up with you about what we talked about last week. Uh, you clearly felt that call to ministry. Where are you at now? And his response forever changed me. He said, you know what, I, I felt that calling. I was so excited to tell my parents. And then I looked at them, I said, this is what God's calling me to do. And they said, no, 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 no. God's not calling you into ministry. You're going to work too much. You're going to pay too little. That's not what we want you to do. Church, family, serving, connecting. And here this young man heard from his parents, no, we're not going to support you in this. It's not what God is, is calling you to do. And he never went through in ministry. At that, that's where the conversation ended. And so it, it begs the question, what causes us to trust God's wisdom over human wisdom? Because, because I think about those situations, and, and it's easy in that case. They said, okay, our son, we want him to make a certain amount. We don't want him to work a certain amount. And so in their human wisdom, they logically didn't think this made sense for them. And so they thwarted that, that push of the Holy Spirit. And, and so I think about with us, it, it's so easy to, to allow human wisdom to sink into our understanding of God and naturally take precedent over God's wisdom. And we say, well, this is just, this is just good wisdom, this is good financials, this is good time management, this is good leadership. When really you look at the word and it's completely different than the leadership and, and the wisdom that we see through Christ and we, we see through God followers and, and our culture which is becoming increasingly non-spiritual, 
we've only faced this worse. And if we had time to sit down and, and, and talk through stories of, of some of the decisions you've had to make and to talk through some of the things you've been forced to do with your occupation, you, you, we would look at each other and say, man, this is everything other than godly wisdom. And so when, when we talk about wisdom, we talk about God's word, and we have to think for a second, is God's wisdom and power truly greater than human wisdom? But do we live like that? We might be able to understand it and, and know, yeah, of course, of course. But does our life translate into godly wisdom over human wisdom? Because a lot of people will say day after day, absolutely. But if you look at the crumbs and the trails of decisions of their life, it's completely different. And so Paul, he, he continues to level into this in chapter 1. And his recipients of this message, he, he just keeps plowing into this topic because the world, when they look at godly wisdom, they think idiocy, foolishness, stupidity. Like, are you kidding me? You're, you're making that decision to do that? That takes away your time, that takes away your finance. I even think about, you know, in my life decisions I've made with, with people that have not been followers of Christ, and maybe, maybe even some who were followers of Christ, they like literally had that look at us like, huh? Like really, you're going to do that? And, and so we need to have a gut check and understand that Paul, when he was speaking into the foolishness of the cross, that's exactly why he did it. That's exactly why, because he wanted us to trust God's wisdom and power even more. And so in this message, he invites us to consider two realities. And these realities are, are the way God works in, in bringing salvation through the cross and that, and that foolishness to the world. And so I want to invite us to consider this. And the first one is consider whom God saves. Consider whom God saves. This is verse 26 through 29. Let's go ahead and put it up here so we can read it together. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, in this, Paul invites the Corinthians first to consider their calling. Right? He says in that first verse, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. The idea of calling is very important, and in some ways we can say this flippantly, but Paul, just in this first chapter, this is the fifth time he's referred to the calling. 
So Paul's appeal to look at their calling is an encouragement to recognize the power of God in work or at work in their salvation. And so then in this, he draws attention, draws their attention to whom God has chose to save. He's like, okay, think of your calling, and now think about you, okay? And so I want to I say this a little different, because he says, hey, look at yourself. These weren't the cool kids. These weren't the kids rocking the $200 sneakers. These weren't the kids in the nice homes. These weren't the kids with a prestigious family. These weren't kids with education or, or titles. They weren't any of that. He's saying, hey, I need you to consider for a second. I don't want to make you feel terrible, but you didn't have the three things that were important at the time. Power, wisdom, nobility. In other words, the majority of the Corinthian church was was made up of people that were uneducated, weak, and lower class. In, In our standards, they were nobodies. They were people that they didn't turn your head to stare back at at the person they were, the prestige they were. They were people who were forgotten. In in this text, I mean, it shows us you weren't wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. He's saying, I chose the lowliest to be used by me. And he uses that word in verse 27, but he contrasts the the world's ideas of of those who are chosen compared to God's ideas. Because he chose the foolish, the weak, the despised. So let's put this into perspective. We got some very, very amazing, impactful people in this church, in the community. Incredible people. I don't want to take anything away from that. And maybe you're that person in here today, and you might say, hey, I didn't finish my high school degree. Yeah, I I don't have a good job. I I don't make the finances I would wish. I didn't go to further education. We barely get by. None of my parents graduated from high school either. Yeah, we've we've had to live on, on government aid because we just can't pay the bills. That's who God chose. He didn't choose the rich, the successful, the beautiful, the well-dressed. That's not who he chose. He's showing us in this text that he used not the prize or crown jewel of the community. He used the person who was the outcast. I've witnessed this myself using the outcast to be used by him to make foolish those who were looked at it in a higher standard. I remember, m- many of you know we were foster parents, and, and I had my, my foster daughter, and, and she did not finish her school. And so we had her, and, and she had the education uh, of a 10-year-old. And so we said, we need to get you your GED. So we went to the Excel Center. We'd have to drop her off every morning, and, and all ages, all ages were walking into this Excel Center. We said, we got to get you a GED. That'll help you when you go and, and start a career, but that's a first step. And I remember 
you know, her going to school and, and, and going every day and trying to stay consistent in her studies. And, and I remember uh, one day I went up and I had her son Mauricio uh, and there was a guy out there. And he was punching signs, he was screaming, he was cursing, he was getting up in this girl's face. And me as a dad, growing up in a very safe area in Chelsea, Michigan, not much crime, I said, okay, it's time to go. Mauricio's in the car, he's safe. Sandra, get in the car, let's go. That's what I'm thinking, right? I'm trying to leave. Well, this girl who's getting yelled at, Look, it looks like she's going to get abused, and, and she's just walking with her face down, and Sandra sits at the car door, and she's looking, and she's staring, no fear. And this guy, he throws his cell phone, he's screaming profanities, and Sandra gets up, and she walks to this girl, and she hugs her, and this girl starts weeping in her arms. And in my mind, I'm like, come on, come on, let's get out of here. This guy's dangerous. You've got to protect the kid. got to protect you. You know, let's get out of here. This is not my place. This is not where I go, where I hang out. And so I'm like protective mode, fear mode. And she doesn't have a moment or minute feeling of fear. She goes and embraces this girl. The guy's screaming, cursing all around. She doesn't even budge for a second to pay attention to him. She said, here's my number. You call me. I'm here whenever you need me. The girl's crying. She's weeping. She's broken. And Sandra gets in the car and leaves. I was like, what were you doing? You know? We, we had to go. We had to be safe. She's like, no. She needed me. I've lived that life. I've walked that life with abusive relationships. I needed to do that. In that moment, I was I was foolish. And she was wise. And she was grace. She was able to minister to a girl in a way that I never could. And I think about her, her upbringing. Didn't have a home with electricity, didn't have running water, didn't even have her first bed, didn't have education, didn't have prestige. But in that moment, she preached a powerful sermon that I had never witnessed God used what was foolish, what was marginalized, and he made me, Pastor Winston, feel this small, <laughs> this big. So why does God call the lowly and the weak? Verse 28, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Unfortunately, when we do a lot of good things in this world, we get really cocky, <laughs> and we get arrogant, and, and we get safe, and we get comfortable. Now, my dear, and, and you look, and you witness, and you ask, what in my life right now am I doing where I live by faith, and it makes me very uncomfortable? Like, I'm just like, oh, that's, that's you know, that is not cool. And, and unfortunately, those, I'm not saying that you can't be wealthy, you can't be wise by being wealthy and successful and with titles. It's just harder. Because this naturally sinks in to how we approach life. And it's because when we are humble, when we are teachable, 
we allow God to speak in our life, into our life in a different way. God often uses the, those individuals who are weak and lowly because they, they don't have anything to hold on to. They don't have anything else. It's just Jesus. I love how uh, Paul draws from the prophet uh, in Jeremiah, and he says this in verse uh, 23 of chapter 9 and, and verse 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul and Jeremiah, they're reminding us that when humanity is arrogant or they think they got it all figured out and, and with their wealth, position, whatever, human accomplishments, we will trust in ourselves more than we will trust in God. Again, nothing's wrong with that. There's just different challenges and if we really put it up there, there might be, if we're honest, a deeper trust in this than our Father. That's why when Paul makes it clear that God works through what is lowly, he, he, he shows us, he reveals to us this temptation. It is very, very real. Because then we can, one step further, maybe even think we've earned our salvation. We've earned our merit before the Father. We've earned by our own endeavors this achievement which is only in Christ alone. When it comes to our salvation, it's only Christ. <laughs> that, that's it. It's only Christ. When it comes, when we come into, into God's presence in prayer, in worship, etc., we need to start adopting a posture of humility. Just, man, I, I get to come to the Father. I get to be with the Father. And, and I get everything I have is His. My breath, my brain, my health, my success, whatever it is, it's only because of Him. And I love how Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2 says it. says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. When we recognize that, that God chooses the least, the lost, the last, and to, to be before him, a lot of it's because of their posture. Because of how humble and how teachable and how available they are. They don't have this conceited pride. And so Paul knew this tendency. We know this tendency. Well, maybe we've lived in this state before. Maybe we're living in this state before. Maybe we've never heard it before. Well, well now we're here, and we all fall somewhere on that, on that line. But Paul knew the tendency would be for humans to trust in themselves over God. So after he encourages the church to consider whom God saves... He encourages them how God saves. That's in the next couple verses. Let's go to verse 30 and 31. Because of him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it's written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, consider whom God saves. Paul highlights the grace of God by emphasizing that it is because of him. Right? It's because of him you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him you you have wisdom. And, And throughout this text, Paul has highlighted God's choosing of the Corinthians. He reminds them that God is also the cause of them being in Christ. Not only did God choose the least for salvation, but he also was the one who effectively saved them. I love this quote by Gordon Fee. He's a New Testament scholar. He says, Wisdom does not have to do with getting smart, nor with status or rhetoric. God's wisdom, the real thing, has to do with salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And so Paul goes on to to utilize three terms. These are three terms. If you've been in the church, you've heard these terms before. You've heard, oh, righteousness is spelled wrong. (laughs) Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And uh, righteousness is one we hear you're righteous, right? It almost seems larger than life. And that, in its simplest form, means to have right standing with God. You know, to be righteous, we have right standing with him. It's a, it's, a, it's a law term, a forensic term about us being before God, and we violated God's law. But now, having been brought in into Christ, they are declared right before the Father. We got sanctification, and not only has Christ brought the believer into right standing with God, but he's also caused them to be set apart for him, to be be holy. It's almost like a a covenantal relationship with God being set apart for him and for his purpose. We are made exactly with purpose. With me, I I believe with, with any shadow of doubt, with no shadow of doubt, that I am supposed to be in ministry. And so if I'm not fulfilling that duty, that means I'm not fully walking in in the sanctification that God has for my life. Some of us, we have this churning in our spirit of of what we feel called to do. And there's just this unrest. And sometimes it's because we are not aligning fully with God's sanctification for us, what he has set us apart for. We're just you know, playing church or, or, or doing this, but not to the degree that we would like. And so sanctification is very important, being set apart for him and with the purpose he has designed for us. And then there's redemption, and we see that in Christ, the believer, we're redeemed uh, from slavery to freedom. We hear that term all the time, and the picture comes from the world of slavery where there's a payment. There's a payment. Someone is enslaved, and now there's a purchase And now that person has been finally set free. It's like Christ has set us free from our bondage. And so you think about these terms. Overall, these terms highlight the incredible work of salvation. 
They all go back and are reminders that salvation in Christ is entirely a work of God and, and what he has done for his people. It, it all goes back to him. We can't take any credit. And, and so when I was thinking about this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound smart for a second. You know, I'm blue collar. I'm, I've been in the South for a little bit. And so I want to use two worms, uh, monergism and synergism. Are those terms that some of us have heard, monergism and synergism? Okay, monergism is this. It is when we believe our salvation is by God alone entirely and by his action, nothing else. Okay, some churches, they act upon, hey, it's Christ, so we are saved by grace through faith. It is only him. That's the term monergism. Synergism is when we believe, okay, God saves us. But we contribute something to our salvation. And so if we're not careful, we might think that we are contributing something to our salvation. Like this little subtle, like, okay, but, you know, I, I, I do my works and all this. No, we're only saved by grace through faith. It is Christ alone. And because of what he has done, nothing on us, we are transferred into, into uh, a child and hairs of him with his Holy Spirit and we live for him. But it is only Christ. It is only him. And those little subtle movements can, can take us away from truly honoring the Father. I, I heard this story years ago. It's an old joke about human arrogance. Uh, one day a, a group of scientists got together and decided that humanity had come a long way. They no longer needed God. So they, they went down to their group and they picked one of the scientists and said, Hey, you're going to go tell God we don't need him anymore. And so that scientist, he walked up to God and he said, Hey, God, we decided we no longer need you. I mean, we've learned how to clone people, manipulate atoms, build molecules, fly through space, uh, among many other things. So why don't you go away and deal with your own business? So God there listened patiently and kindly. After the scientist was done talking, God said, okay, very well, how about this? How about, uh, before I do that, we have a human-making competition? So this person said, fair enough. He said, let's, let's do this the old-fashioned way, where, like what we did with Adam. So the scientist nodded said, okay, no problem. Then the scientist reached down to grab some dirt to start, and, and God said, no, 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 <laughs> get your own dirt. It's like so often we think it, it's us. I heard this quote, to really make an apple pie from scratch, you must begin by inventing the universe. <laughs> because none of that is ours. None of the ingredients. It's all his. And when we do that, not saying we're becoming depressed or self-deprecating, we just keep God where he needs to be, on top. And we understand where we are in this universe, a part of his story, a part of his redemption story. So it leads to this entire idea, the big idea, boast in God's wisdom and power. If I'm going to boast about anything, I, I'm going to boast about him. I'm going to boast that I'm saved by grace, alone through faith, in Christ alone. I'm going to boast 
that he's the one who's given me any good thing in my life. Think about it this way. Let's say I'm in Lake St. Clair, just off the beach of the beautiful New Baltimore with the biggest, uh, which I said, the biggest uh, uh, flagpole in the state. And so I'm out there, I'm swimming, I go far out, I decide, you know, I'm going to go kayaking. And so I go out there, only problem is I get really far into the lake, and I realize there's a hole in my kayak, and so it starts to sink. Well, me and my arrogance, my overconfidence, I didn't put on a life jacket. So now I'm in the middle of the lake, and my boat is sinking, and I have no life jacket, and so I start to flail and scream, help me, help somebody, help me. And then eventually I get weak, and and then I start to sink in the water and lose consciousness. And just then a lifeguard spots me from the beach. And so they they run out there, and and they grab me, and then they carry me in, and they realize I'm not conscious. So they they perform CPR, and then the EMT arrives, and and my lungs clear, and I'm brought back to life. Now fast forward a week later. Let's say I'm, I'm hanging with my friends, and I'm sitting at the table, and they're like, yo, tell me that story, man. What happened? In that moment, what do you think I'm going to highlight? What do you think I'm going to brag about or boast about? Am I going to brag, man, I can't believe how, how long I paddled for? I'm the only reason I'm alive. Because I paddled my lungs. Man, I was, I was like, I should be in the choir. I should be in the worship team. Ooh, you know, like, I... I'm not going to brag about my swimming ability. I'm not going to brag about how loud I can yell. I'm going to brag about the lifeguard. I can't believe he saved my life. I can't believe he swam all the way out there. I can't believe he dragged me back. I can't believe he performed CPR and brought me back to life. I cannot believe it. I'm not going to brag about anything I've done. I'm only in that problem because I put myself there. And so often we, we brag about our screaming ability and our paddling ability when it's God who saved us. And that's the gospel. That Christ, he came and he saved us from, from the life and the path, the trajectory we're heading, which was eternal death because of our rebellion, our sin. And yet God, out of his grace, sent his son to die for our sins. And then he gave us the tools, the faith, his spirit necessary to fully trust him and trust his promises. And and because of that, we can't brag about anything with us. We only can boast in him alone. You know, I I said we're going to talk about life groups. I unashamedly believe that one of the simplest ways that that we can practice boasting in Christ and and, and bringing it all back to him is in the context of of a small community, of a life group. Uh, Often when when we are gathered with other Christians in the context of community, over dinner, living room, whatever it is, uh, we could talk through this. Man, what's what what has God done in your life? We call this gospel fluency. Gospel fluency is just making it part of your language that, that you always bring it back to God and how He has brought us here. He has saved us in this way. He's redeemed us in this way. And so we naturally start to boast and brag in the ways that God has showed up. 
And so that's something that I feel like anyone would, would love to experience. So what ultimately causes us to trust in God's power and, and over human beings? You know, I think about that family, and when, when I heard from that student that he was not going to go into ministry, it, it broke my heart. These are churched people, good, godly people. They appeared from the not lukewarm, not, not uh, over-arrogant, and yet... They trusted in, in, in worldly wisdom over godly wisdom. And with us and, and what that looks like, we, we got to bring it back to God. We got some very successful people in this room, some very driven people in this room, some wonderful, godly people in this room. To God be all the glory the gifts he's given you, the passion he's given you, the drive he's given you, to use those things for the betterment of the kingdom. So guys, let's give it to him. Right now, let's give it all to him. You know, I think about when, when God takes out the trash, don't go through it, digging back through it. Like, let's just keep him at the forefront. And if you've never put your trust in him, You've never had him on the throne of your life. There's no better time than right now. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.